This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I talk with Josh Patterson. He is the co-host of the Rethinking Faith podcast. It used to be called Theology Doesn't Suck, and so we sometimes refer to it as that in our conversation. But basically, this is an episode in the vein of the Evil, Hell, and Evidence for God at a Christian College episode. So similar to that one, I had Josh list out the five top questions that he finds with uh, the young adults and college kids that he 
works with at his multiracial church on the East Coast. So we're talking about LGBTQ questions, hell, science, scripture, and the problem of evil uh, from their perspective and in his unique perspective at this particular church. I think you'll find this really interesting, especially if you liked that previous episode. There's not much else to say, so we'll just get into it with Josh here. Josh Patterson, thank you for being here and doing this episode with me. You are the co-host of the Theology Doesn't Suck podcast. I've been a guest, well, maybe by the time this comes out twice, because we're you know we're recording that one soon, um, but I was on it uh, earlier this year as well. And then we also got a chance to hang out uh, a couple times at the AAR conference in San Diego in November, and we over some very good tacos. Would that be safe to say? Like very, very good? Probably the best tacos I've ever had. Okay, so yeah. some excellent, <laughs> excellent San Diego tacos. We came up with this episode idea because we were just chatting and and you kind of brought up the difference between thinking about some of these theological questions that are interesting and, and matter to you versus talking about them in your role as a youth pastor with, you know, 14 to 18 year olds who have sort of a, a differently formed brain and, you know, and all of that stuff. So anything else you want to say to kind of set that up? Maybe also just talk a little bit about your job and, and the church where you uh, minister, because I think that that church is quite unique in some respects. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, well, first off, thanks for, for having me on, Dan. I appreciate it. And also, yeah, those tacos were were amazing. Uh, if you ever go to San Diego, go to wherever Dan and I were, which I don't remember where it was, but it was good. It was called uh, Tacos <laughs> Los Chuchis. There we go. Yeah. Right on. Sweet. So, but yeah, so I, I'm a, I'm a high school and young adult pastor uh, at a church called Seneca Creek Community Church. And it's actually the, the third church I've, I've uh, been a part of on a staff role. The first two were pretty shit, um, as I shared with you, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, you are, man. Speak <laughs> yeah, freely. So, so not great. Uh, but where I'm at now is, is a super cool church. It's super unique. So we're, uh, we're in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is like a suburb of D.C., so what's unique about it is we're super diverse. Um, and by that, I mean, we have like 60 some nationalities represented on any given Sunday. Wow. So going, going to church at Seneca Creek is literally like going to a United Nations meeting. That's like the joke we always make, uh, which is super cool because uh, I did not grow up in that context. I grew up in like a context with a bunch of uh, people who said the N word and meant it and like had Confederate flags and, and fun stuff like that. Wow. Um, it ju- I do yeah. wonder, is, are, are some of the people at the church like diplomats or families of diplomats or is it is just D.C. a very racially diverse area and the church has done a good job of drawing a diverse population? Yeah, so I'm not sure about the diplomat thing, but uh, I can comment on I do know that they've been very good and intentional. Uh, they've spent about the last 20 years really focusing on like, dude, so Gaithersburg – is something like the second most diverse city in the country. Okay. Um, so they were like, all right, well, we need to reflect our community. So they've put so much energy into it. I mean, from like staffing. So like our staffing reflects the diversity. Yeah. The people you see on stage on Sunday. Yep. Uh, I mean, we live translate services into both French and Spanish. Wow. We sing in different languages. So it's really cool. It's, it's a really unique church. I've never, ever been a part of anything like it. Uh, French is the international diplomatic language, Josh. So maybe there's ah, something. Ah, so maybe there are. Maybe there's yeah. something to what I thought. 
Um, <laughs> that is incredible. There's there's a church here in Seattle called Quest that is also does a really really good job of of that. I I've been once and was kind of floored by how successfully they integrated. You know, there was verses of the worship songs in Spanish and the worship band and everybody else who came to speak on stage was sort of a rainbow coalition of ethnicities. And it was like very, very cool and very powerful. Uh, I can imagine being a part of that would be quite rewarding. Dude, absolutely. Especially, too, since the the first two churches that I worked at were very much like all white people. <laughs> so, Which is the norm. I mean, the norm is churches are basically one ethnic group. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that idea of uh, of tribalism or, you know, you hang out with people that look like you. And uh, yeah, for us at Seneca Creek, it's not like that. And uh, it's been super cool to be a part of. I mean, even my students reflect that, you know, so there's all sorts of fun things that come with serving in a, a super diverse congregation. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to add that to kind of our uh, rubric here for each of these topics, um, okay. because there are real cultural differences among ethnic groups in America. I mean, oh, not for sure. Obviously not every single member, but on a bell curve, like, you know, proportionally. So that'll be an interesting angle. I guess before we head into these, uh, you, you gave me seven, seven things that come up a lot. And we're going to go through each of those before we do that. <laughs> I guess what's the age range of the young adults. So you, so it's high school and young adults. We know how old high schoolers are. Where's kind of the cutoff. And aren't you a young adult? Or are you yeah. older than that? <laughs> no, so I'm definitely a young adult. I'm. We define at Seneca Creek. We define young adults as 18 to 25. Uh, so okay. college, basically, um, college age students, and you know, short years after college. Yeah. Uh, we consider young adults, or at least that's the target group we're working with because we're missing them in our congregation. And so, yes, I fall into that group. I'm 25 years old. Yeah. Uh, born in 1994. And so the, there are other groups of people that would call themselves young adult. Like there's an argument about like, oh, is young adult a life stage? Can we shut it off at, you know, 30 or whatever? How about just uh, uh, how many for, for guys, how often do you play video games? And then your answer determines if we treat you like a regular adult or a young adult. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, man. So I still play video games. So I guess I'll be a young adult. Well, you forever. still are either way. So you're good. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <clears throat> just determined how long like how long of a prolonged adolescence each person is in, and then you can determine if they should be treated like a full adult. <laughs> okay, so yeah. what we're going we're gonna to talk about, the differences between talking about this issue with young adults, basically college kids and older, your peers, and then high schoolers, where I imagine you take a different tack, you see different things with those mm. populations because there's a huge cognitive difference, right, between yeah, those two sure. groups. So anything uh, you want to make sure we know before we get in to the first one? Not that I can think off of the top of my head. I mean, I guess just so people know where I'm coming from, I I tend to fall within, I guess, the realms of a more progressive form of Christianity. Um, and I've arrived there over time. And the church that I work at is just a very middle-of-the-road evangelical church. And they kind of have, <laughs> no pun intended, but they've given me permission to be myself yeah. And uh, they promote the podcast from stage, which is really cool. Uh, multiple people on staff listen to it. I have parents that listen to the podcast, and they're kind of okay with what we're doing. So they're middle-of-the-road evangelicals, but they're open to different processes of thought. And 
the congregation as a whole uh, probably has everybody from super conservative fundamentalist to like the most progressive people you could ever find. So it's a really cool context to be in. Yeah, that is so interesting. I mean, uh, I'll share this that you mentioned to me over lunch was that when they did a, a bit on homosexuality, which is our first topic here, they actually did a kind of a roundtable thing where they brought up a person who had the more traditional view and they brought up you, right? Who had the more yeah. progressive view and they kind of just talked it out and didn't come to any conclusions. And I was yeah, like, exactly. wow, that is not <laughs> what normally happens. <laughs> yeah, not at all. It was super cool. Like, uh, yeah. So Mark, who's the head pastor, uh, he has a more conservative perspective. Like he understands the affirming argument and his, his words are like, I'm open, but I'm not quite there. Like, I can't embrace it, but I get it. Uh, so he promoted, like, a more conservative approach. We had a, a lady uh, come up at this roundtable perspective who uh, identifies as a lesbian woman. She's been a lesbian her whole life. Um, however, she, in her words, she fell in love with a man that she met at a bar. And so she's married to him, and they have kids, but she still considers herself a lesbian. And so she didn't do like, she's not trying the celibacy thing or like, I'm doing this for God. She's just like, for whatever reason, I fell in love with this dude. Um, Hmm. But I'm a lesbian. Like, I think guys are gross. (laughs) And so uh, she was a part of it. And then myself, who uh, I got to, you know, promote a more like affirming view. So it it was really cool. And there was no resolution. It was just like, people, now you have to go do your homework and figure it out yourself. I think a lot of church staff would like to have a church like that, but literally can't afford to because they would just get oh, sure. fired. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's a really is... beautiful model. And I think it's it's kind of the thing that we need these days, especially for younger people, you know, people 40 and below who recognize that there are a, like a multiplicity of options and views and are and are kind of uncomfortable with this is the biblical view being said 10 different ways at 10 different churches about the biblical view. And, you know, like, I, I think it's, it's really refreshing, but let, let's talk about that one. So that's the first one on the list. You okay. have uh, youth and young adults, you know, asking why does God hate gay people or just <laughs> le- less, uh, you know, just general questions about homosexuality. And I think what I'm, what I'm most interested in is, you and I are not going to litigate each of these and sort of come to a position, but like, how do you think about it differently? So my first question is like, what's the real life context for younger people when they ask that question? Yeah. So I think within the context that I'm at, my students, they look around and they realize like, Hey, this question about homosexuality isn't just a question about some group of people that are out there somewhere. But these are the the people that I go to school with and I interact with every single day. They're my friends. They're my teachers. They're my coaches. You know, they're people of influence in my Don't life. Don't be stereotypical, dude. They're not coaches, okay? Not all, <laughs> not all. You know, f- female soccer coaches are lesbians, Josh. Okay, stop it. <laughs> my bad. My bad. I should I should be uh, publicly shamed for my stereotyping. No, no, no. Anyway, um, go on, go on. No, I hear you. Though, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's the idea. So the the it's not an out there question. It's a personal question. It's a these are people I deal with every single day, and churches telling me, or at least I think churches telling me that I should hate these people, but they seem to be pretty cool. They have a, a an impact on me in my life uh, for for positive, for good. They have my best intentions in mind. Uh, they teach me well, or they coach me well, or whatever. 
or they're my best friend. And so that's kind of the context that they're they're coming with. Is and that the same for the high schoolers and the college, like young adults? That probably that probably goes across the board. Yeah, I think it's across the board, especially now that it's like less of a taboo thing. And although it's not, you know, fully accepted, obviously, but it's it's more widely accepted, you know, within society as a whole. So it's more commonplace to be open about uh, being homosexual or, you know, um, identifying as non-binary or, or whatever it might be. So, And then what about ethnically? Because this one is also interesting mm. for, for a multi-ethnic church. There are real differences, especially with first-generation folks whose parents immigrated here or, you know, second-generation or whatever, if they have a strong sense of their own culture. Most cultures that are not Western European or maybe, you know, sort of born-and-bred Americans – where we're kind of split on this question, are not affirming. African Mm -hmm. society, you know, most African cultures, most uh, Latin American cultures. So how does that tend to come up in your context? Yeah, so that's that's one thing that's really unique, uh, like you pointed out, because we do have, we have both a heavy population of a wide variety of of Africans uh, within our church, and also a wide variety of uh, Latinos uh, or Hispanic people in our church as well. And like you rightfully pointed out, it's a, it's a much different conversation there. And so that's really where I think the diversity and opinion within the church, and specifically from church leadership, because uh, our church leadership is split on the, the question of homosexuality, I think that reflects our congregation. And so by having leadership that that also reflects that is is helpful. So really, it comes down to not making straight up like, this is how it is, this is what you have to believe, kind of statements, and rather saying, okay, here, here's how Christians across the board think about this. Uh, some might believe this, some might believe this, some might believe this. Now you go find the perspective that works for you, and then kind of being okay with that uh, is really how we have to approach most <laughs> questions like this within the church. Ones where there's kind of a cultural element to where Absolutely. people fall, you mean, yeah. That's really interesting. It's almost like that's a really smart approach. I think that Quest, the church here in Seattle, is struggling with this issue. I think that mostly the leadership wants to be affirming. I know that, for instance, like people who are like active queer people are serving in certain respects. Um, I've just had I've had conversations with people who go there about this of like, you know, on the worship team or as a usher or something like that. But because they are uh, multi-ethnic, I think that sometimes they feel like they've got to choose between. And I, I think that this might be true. I've, I've thought that this might be true. You got to choose your issue. You're either going to be a, a church that brings queer people into the fold, or you're going to have racial diversity. Because if you bring queer people into the fold, you're mostly going to have white people uh, yeah. or, you know, whatever kids who are raised in urban environments in the States. And I think that that's a tough decision to make because those are both really important values. So your church is trying to thread that needle in a different way. Yeah, it's, I mean, definitely trying to for sure. And I know uh, that the question of um, somebody within like the LGBTQ uh, community serving or having a role on church staff is, is probably one that's up in the air. Like we don't, honestly, I don't know where that would fall. Uh, if it was up to the staff, actually, the majority of our staff probably fall within a more affirming category, um, including some people that I, I judged wrongly. 
Uh, there's an, an older lady on staff who's a, a pastor. Um, she's from the South. And I automatically assumed that she was not going to be affirming. And she blew my mind when we started having these conversations. So it's, it's, it's really all over the place with our staff. But then what's kind of neat is I have the ability to, within the young adult and high school ministry, I have like what's called SLT, student leadership team. And I can have uh, LGBTQ students on that leadership team. So from, you know, within uh, student ministry, which is, I guess, where it's maybe even more of a question, because there's some people in the church that are just like, okay, whatever, like, believe whatever. But with the students, it's it's huge, especially amongst the college kids. And so I have the ability to allow those students to participate fully within the realms of, of ministry. So I think that's yeah. really cool and unique cool. and different. And that might be the beginning of something. I added a, a last category for each of these uh, okay. in case there are other people who either are in youth ministry or have high schoolers or are you know in regular relationship with high schoolers, especially. Um, I think almost everybody listening is in relationship with some young adults. Many of the listeners are young, young adults themselves, but Sweet. specifically with youth. So any tips on when this question comes up with you know high schoolers or early college kids? Yeah, I think uh, just being completely honest. I mean, I take a huge, uh, that's one of my like core values is honesty and authenticity. Um, and so students know where I stand on this issue. I'm in a position where I can say, okay, I have a more firm position. This is where I fit. And I can, you know, tie in my story. Like my brother is gay. So I'm, that has had huge influence in my life. There's a strong possibility that my other brother is gay. Um, I have, <laughs> you heard it here first, everybody. Yeah. Like one of my best friends who is a worship pastor at a church that I served in, he's gay. So I have these influences in my life so I can openly share with students. This is where I come from. But then I also have to be willing to say, okay, but here's where pastor Mark is. Who's the head pastor of my church. Pastor Mark would say this, however, or maybe then another person on staff might say this. And so being honest and willing to share different positions and then telling students, it's okay if you don't agree with me. You don't have to. I'm not asking you to agree with me, but rather I want to be honest with you and say, this is how Christians across across the spectrum think about this issue. And you now have to go study and, and uh, read your Bible and pray and look at research or whatever, and come to a conclusion for yourself, um, and being willing to sit in that tension of maybe my students disagree with me, maybe they agree with me, uh, and that's okay. Basically, yeah. it's it's holding that that tension in place and being okay with that. I'm I'm actually is, getting a yeah. little sad listening to you say this because this is precisely okay. the the final issue that came up when my wife and I left our church. Okay. Is that I was trying to do youth ministry there. I had volunteered for it. They brought up that this topic was an issue that I was affirming. And I was hoping to do something like you just described. Say, look, there are different views. Here's what our church tends to believe. That's not the only thing that Christians believe. And they didn't go for that. And wow. so I, I was like, okay. And that ended up being – it wasn't the only reason that we left, but that ended up being kind of the last uh, – kind of the final straw. And so that's – <laughs> it's very cool. I'm very glad that you get to do that, but I'm also like, ah, oh, damn, that could have been that could have been me, you know. Oh well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I use, I think, too, uh, something that's helpful um, and something that I was honest about within like the process of me even getting hired at this church because this question came up. They asked me like, "What do you think about this?" And I was honest. 
Um, but I, I told them that I use a concentric circle model that I stole from Greg Boyd, if you've heard from him. Yeah, I, I think we put it at it's it's in the show notes for the atonement the atonement theories episode. Oh yeah, Bonnie exactly because bon, yeah. yeah, Bonnie Christian uses it as well. Yeah, yeah she's so in exa- her book, yeah. yeah, exactly that. So I use that model to teach my students uh, consistently, and I'm always pressing it, and um, I'm really big on that. And so I always ask, okay, so this is the question you're asking: Where in this model does it fall? Do we have do we have a creed about homosexuality? Well, no, we don't. Okay, so it's a doctrinal right. issue, so we can disagree about it, and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, now the, that's good. The rub, the rub comes in when people uh, try to push it to the level of dogma, and then you just you know can't talk with them because there's no reasoning with them. But yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, so that so that's a tip. Use that boy the concentric circles uh, model that Greg Boyd did. You can Google that Greg Boyd yeah. concentric circles. It'll show up. That's how I found it. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. The second question that comes up: Do my non-Christian friends really go to hell? So mm. the first question is. What is the real life context for people at this age range? I imagine it's quite similar to the homosexuality. Yeah. These are my real friends, right? This yep. is not an abstract question for me. I, where you live, multiracial, I imagine it's also a multi-religious society if it is a multi-racial city, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very much so. So what are the kind of things that you hear you know, kids and young adults talk about with their Hindu friends or their Muslim friends or whatever? Like, How do they frame it? Yeah, so I can uh, if I can get, just give like a personal story. Um, I think Great. it'll it'll work well. So I have a student. Uh, she approached me, I guess, about two months ago, um, and she was like, "Hey, like all the stuff you talk about, like the the kingdom of God and like how God loves you know loves us and whatever. It's really great." But I had this friend. See, he was a good friend of of our family, uh, but he was Jewish, and he was he was a really good person. Uh, like he used to babysit us, he used to do all these things. He's a good friend of our family and he's a firefighter and he was out trying to save somebody else's life. And in the process of doing so, he was killed in the line of duty as a firefighter. And according to some people, you know, they tell me that, well, my friend is in hell now because they somehow didn't manage to self-appropriate Jesus to them. And she said, I've talked to, you know, this person at the church, and they told me, well, you know, I can't really answer that question because, you know, I'm not the judge. And another person told me, well, sadly, I'm sorry, but your friend is in hell. And so she asked me my opinion. And in that moment, I knew what I wanted to say because even though I'm uncomfortable saying it, I'm like a low-key universalist. <laughs> I'm still getting getting uh, comfortable with that. But I bounce sure. between an annihilation and, uh, and universalism. But the more I dig into it, uh, some kind of patristic universalism seems uh, most appropriate to me. And so basically in that moment, I felt that what I needed to tell this student was that God loves her friend and that there are Christians, uh, myself included, uh, that believe that a God of love would not (laughs) send her friend from the fire, literally the fire of trying to rescue another human being uh, into the fires of torment uh, in hell. And I said, I have... I think you should have strong reason to believe and faith to believe that your friend is with God right now. And she just like broke down crying and hugged me for like five minutes, which was really uncomfortable <laughs> for me because it was a female student. But um, she needed that in that moment. Yeah. Um, and if I were to tell her anything differently, I think I would have failed at my calling, my vocation, whatever language you want to put at it. Do you find any difference among – and you know, if you don't know, that's fine. I, I know that there's a cultural difference around homosexuality, right? Like sure, different cultures. Sure. 
I don't I'm not aware of anything regarding something like if non-Christians go to hell. Have you yeah. come across any of that? I really haven't. Um, I mean, if anything, where I can kind of see it more so is within some of the African cultures they tend to have a v- more like way more conservative approach to things like that. However, no student, no young adult that I've talked to, and I, I really hope no adult in general wants to see anybody go to hell. Like, I think if someone has a like legitimately understands what eternal conscious torment means, if you actually want somebody to go there, then like, what the hell, dude? Like, <laughs> you're so off base. How, yeah. how you can call yourself a Christian? I don't. I don't understand. So I don't. I don't. I don't see much of a cultural difference. But if there was one, my guess would be it would be more towards uh, some of the African cultures. And I, I, I kind of get that from some, some parents. I'll get emails like, you know, you got to tell these kids the truth or whatever. Yeah, I, I think you get that from the older generation in every Oh, absolutely. Though. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm wondering I'm wondering if it shows up with the youth. Um, but Not that, at that, all. all. All the youth want to be universalist, honestly. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, what I Brad, find. Brad Jursak said something really similar to, to that effect in, in our interview on, on universalism. Um, what about co- – this one strikes me as a really interesting topic for, for the cognitive conversation, right? Okay. Um, I actually – an episode has not aired yet at the time that we're taping this, but it's coming soon. I interviewed these two researchers about they, – they developed what's called the hell anxiety scale. They're like social scientists. Okay. And they study religion. And psychology. And and one thing we talked about was that like with hell, there's kind of a limit after which like more details about hell or hell going on longer than a hundred years or something. Like there's sort of a mental wall you hit, right? You mm-hmm. can't really conceive of hell that way, but you just know it's really bad and that you don't want to go there. I wonder though if that applies the same way to other people being in hell. So mm. I can't imagine myself being tortured f- indefinitely for eternity. I could maybe imagine glimpses of someone else being tortured and imagine that that goes on forever. It's probably easier to imagine than it is to imagine myself. It's less cognitive dissonance, right? I wonder if you've noticed anything between the younger students and the older young adults on this issue. Do they seem to like conceive of hell in a different way given the fact that their brains are still maturing? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And when it's come up, what I most find with young adults, at least in my experience, and again, everything I'm saying is based upon yeah, my experience. It's anecdotal, um, but it's still interesting, yeah. Sure. So within my experience, what I've noticed with a lot of the young adults, the 18 to 25, is that their version of hell that they kind of have latched onto is this idea of just separation from God. Which can be a wide variety of things, right? I mean, separation of God could be annihilation, essentially. um, Or it could just be like you're in this dark place forever without God, whatever that means. Um, But I haven't found young adults, at least in my context, that are sold on this idea of, like, torture forever. Um, And then That's interesting. Yeah. and and Actually, that's interesting because one of the things that one of the researchers said in that interview is that that has become more the way that... Uh, infernalists, if you will, people who believe in <laughs> eternal okay. hell, talk about it now these days more so than they used to. It's it's less, uh, you know, flames and boils and more like separation from God, that that's the way that people and, – and one of them was suggesting that's how you kind of deal with that cognitive dissonance. You go, well, 
okay, you kind of soften up on it and say, it's just, it's just not with God. That's right. the way we'll kind of, and it's the same thing. You're getting past this like unimaginable reality. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. That is interesting. And one thing too, I mean, I know we're not trying to make positional arguments, but one thing that I, I push back on uh, young adults when they bring that up to me, I'm like, okay, well, you believe God is the source of life, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so God gives you the ability to live. God is like uh, sustaining your existence, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. so if you're separated from God, how do you exist? And they're like, uh. <laughs> so yeah. I like throwing that question at them. But then with the younger students, with the high school students, the only time I've ever had a student who was like very adamantly about some kind of eternal conscious torment they were a student from Africa, which is interesting, and just very conservative. They grew up in a more Catholic tradition, which is also interesting in and of itself. But mostly outside of that, uh, students seem to want to embrace some form of universalism. And I think the reason for that is because young people, especially high schoolers, are really, really adamant on the idea of justice and social justice and I mean, it's crazy, like working with, with homeless people or racial um, divisions. Even when I worked in a Methodist church that was not diverse at all, they were huge, huge on social justice issues, huge on racial reconciliation and working with the homeless and whatever. So I think younger people these days just have like a really strong understanding of justice and an eternal conscious torment doesn't line up with justice in their mind at all. So they're looking for another way to believe, you know, or, or to think about things. And so I'm more than willing and, and more than happy to share with them different ways that people think about it, uh, specifically so they can, you know, reconcile their church life with the real world. So, Yeah. Do you have any tips for people who are working with youth on this question of friends being in hell? I think honesty, again, I mean, that's probably going to keep coming up. Being honest with where you are on the, the topic, but also having the humility to allow students to disagree with you is really where I keep I keep coming back to. Like I had, so I shared the story uh, with the girl whose friend died uh, as a firefighter, um, but I had another student, uh, a male student, ask me recently about this, and I shared with them because they're like, so I read in the Bible that something about like God has the, the keys to hell or something like that. What's that all about? And they asked really good questions. And I said, well, here's multiple ways people think about this. So I'm, I guess, and it might just be repetitive, but it, being willing to present different ways that Christians throughout church history have thought about it, which means, hey, maybe you have to do some homework and find out that like maybe the pastor that you've grown up with forever uh, isn't right about everything or they don't hold <laughs> the only view that there is. Yeah, there's something about that uh, that's really interesting. Uh, each you've said that twice now, right? With the homosexuality yeah. question and the and I hell think question, but there's something about age difference and that yeah. approach. Like uh, people tell me all the time that the atonement theories episode has like been the most helpful one for them. Just the fact that Bonnie went through here are five of them, right? I mean, five <laughs> exist. Not only one exists. Penal substitutionary atonement, right? So I think there is. A generational difference. There's an appetite for nuance and let me know what the different views on this are. That's mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. And I think I, it's funny because I had this conversation with the head pastor with Mark just the other day where with older adults, 
Um, Because, I mean, we have people from zero to like 90 in our church. But with the older generations, they are content with coming to church, sitting their butts in a seat, and having the pastor tell them what they ought to believe. And then they're just like, oh, well, the pastor said eternal conscious torment's true, so I guess it is. Uh, And young people, at least in my experience, I'm finding they're not down with that. Like, that's not what they want. Also, it's not helpful to them because I have students go to college and then their faith gets blown sky high. And I don't want that for any of my students because I went through that and it sucked. Like it was painful, it was difficult. I know listeners of of your show can relate to that. Um, I know you can probably relate to that. And I don't want that for my students. So I'm like, let's be honest up front with them. Like here are multiple ways that people think about this and they're all fine. (laughs) find what works for you. I don't know, man. Like some people disagree with me and I get shit for it on like youth pastor forums online and stuff where I try to promote this kind of stuff. They're like, you gotta, (laughs) you gotta tell the kids the truth or you're lying to them. Like whatever, dude, when your kids go to college and they don't come back to your church, let me know how that worked out for you. (laughs) Oh, sick burn, dude. That's kind of dark. That was my little, you got a little anger around that. Yeah, I do. I'm jaded to be honest, but (laughs) Well, you're jaded in that respect, but you obviously you sound very hopeful in other respects. Yeah, dude, cuz I but it's because I see it. Like I can see it playing out in front of me that once you give students again, not to use a pun, but permission to think for themselves, they're like, "Whoa, like God is way bigger, way better than I ever thought." And why did no one ever tell me this? That's the question I get asked the most. Why did no one ever tell me there's different ways to think about this? That's the million-dollar question, man. That's the million-dollar psychological question is why didn't they tell you? Yeah. If they knew or did they know? And if they knew or – and if they didn't know, it's not like hard to know. So why right. didn't they <laughs> want to find out? I mean that's – that is the interesting question is – Yeah. OK. So in one sense, duh, there are different views on these things. Zondervan publishes a four-views, five-views book on every topic you can imagine. Three sure. or four come out every year. Yeah. Uh, people – and Zondervan's not a liberal publisher. They're no. in Lifeway bookstores, <laughs> right? I mean, so why – that is the question. Why hasn't anybody told me this? Why? Yeah, straight up. I. Yeah. M- maybe we That's could say – Season one uh, or year one of You Have Permission was about primarily getting those options out there. Subsequent years, we'll be answering that question of <laughs> why haven't those options gotten out there in the first place? Dude, and honestly, man, like we're uh, to promote your podcast on your own podcast, dude. Like, not only has you been You Have Permission been helpful to me, but I recommend it to students, and I have pushed it to staff members, and it really helps. Like it, it blows people's minds and it's shaping like these kind of ideas and these kind of thoughts, like since I've been on staff and I've been willing to be open and honest and push these kind of ideas, it's shaping culture at the church into something that I didn't think could happen in a church. I I really appreciate that, man. man. When people say they share it as a resource, you know, and, and some therapists have told me that they do that. And, um, yeah, other people in church leadership, that's pretty much the highest that's like the coolest thing anybody could tell me. Dude, straight uh, up, man. It's awesome. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. My friend Sari this week told me, you should have called that recent Patreon episode with Sarah Lane Ritchie something other than white blessing because she's like, ah, I kind of read some stuff about that and uh, I almost didn't listen to it, but I did. And you guys took that conversation 
in such interesting directions. To which I replied, well, Siri, you should have read the description of the episode. But of course, not always people don't always read the descriptions. We start with this idea of white blessing in the Lou Giglio uh, viral video and his subsequent um, apologies and stuff. But really, we take that as a launch pad to go a bunch of different directions theologically uh, and socially. We talk about prosperity gospel, open theism and process theology. We talk about IVF. Uh, and our struggles with fertility, both Sarah's and my own and my wife's. Talk about the word blessing versus the word gift versus the word grace. We talk about narratives that people have said slaves are better off now that we've made them slaves and have them live in America. Uh, it's a, a wide ranging conversation. Very interesting. It would have been uh, our standard episode, but Sarah has just been on the show too much recently. I always find myself uh, wanting to talk with her, with her, especially about current events. She's such a sharp mind. Of course, she's a theologian. She's been on the show before. You probably recognize her name. Anyway, that's the most recent patron episode. So if you're considering becoming a patron and you haven't yet, it'd be a good time so you could listen to that. And if you are one, definitely check that out. Even if you think you've read or heard all you need to hear about the phrase white blessing, I promise it goes far beyond that and I think you'll like it. So the Patreon community is $5 a month. It includes two of these exclusive episodes per month, at least, and access to the patron-only Facebook group. And if you really can't afford that right now, I do have a sliding scale. Email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. It's not about extracting as many dollars from you as possible. It's more about just having some kind of buy-in to be a part of the community, which I have found makes the Facebook community much, much better than I experienced with my previous podcast. Anyway, yeah, that's a thing I always talk about in the middle here. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron to hear that conversation with Sarah Lane Ritchie around white blessing. All right, back to my conversation with Josh. Okay, Josh, so we've got five more of these. The next one is... Can I be a Christian and accept science? Uh, this is another episode of, of You Have Permission yeah. uh, from early on, trusting science. But um, what, what are the, what's the context for either or both of the high school kids or the young adults in, in asking this question? Yeah, this one uh, comes up a lot, especially too. I mean, this might be interesting to share. Like we... Our church uh, has a whole section in the building that we rent out to another organization that is like a, a biomedical research kind of thing. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. These, so these are like legit scientist professionals. Oh, straight up. Straight yeah. up. Yeah. And we have a ton of scientists in the church. I mean, one of my, one of my leaders uh, in the church is a researcher uh, that deals with psychology of addiction. And so she does all sorts of stuff. Uh, her name is Babita. She's awesome. Really smart lady. And she does all sorts of research on like the effects of whatever drug, alcohol, whatever you can imagine uh, on the human brain and how it causes us to respond. So people that go to Seneca Creek are wicked smart. We can't push anybody over, you know, um, even to the point where they had recently, I wasn't on staff yet, but they hosted a conference where they had like people from BioLogos and... Uh, they had people who were not Christians, who were just pure, like, evolutionary, whatever, um, like, atheists. Yeah. It was yeah. really cool. So they, they opened themselves up to these kind of conversations because, again, it's the reality that 
it's the people in our church. They have to. They're not just people that are out there. They're here amongst us. There's something really beautiful about that, of about responding to your congregation and your community the way that they actually are, not the way that yeah. you would prefer them to be, given your doctrinal uh, <laughs> doctrinal assumptions, you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's awesome. And I mean, I mean, I have students right now that are college students that are in school getting their uh, de- like becoming doctors and and whatever. So again, it's just one of those things where this is our reality. This is. Uh, who we are, we are scientists. Now show us how we can still be Christians because there are people who tell us we can't do both. So I imagine most of those people, they've already got PhDs in science. So they're at least mid twenties, 30 or older. Does that culture trickle down? Do some of those people have teenagers in the youth group? You know, how does... How does that sort of show up with the younger population or and do some of the young adults and college kids, are they studying in the sciences, maybe at school or have degrees in science? You know, just give us a little bit more of that context. Yeah. So well, as far as the high school students go, the the county that I'm in, Montgomery County, uh, has some of the best school systems in the country. Um, and so they have all sorts of specialized programs. And so we have, yes, we have students that are studying uh, high-level uh, science, cutting-edge kind of things. Uh, and so their questions, I mean, they bring them with them, which is why I brought it up. And so you can't hide from them. <laughs> and then also, I mean, I think of, uh, like, I have a student who is in school right now. Uh, they are working to become a doctor, but recently they're like, hey, I think I might want to be a youth pastor, but they'll tell my parents. <laughs> um, That's funny, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's... I mean, it's amongst them uh, within the population all the way across. So, yes, there are parents who are scientists whose kids are are also involved. I know, like I said, I have leaders that are scientists. Um, the middle school director, Heather, she's awesome. Uh, she's actually preparing right now to teach a series on uh, Genesis, specifically around the ideas of creationism. And there's a scientist that uh, is really passionate about it that she's handing over the reins to to say, okay, you're going to teach this series for us. And he's not a young earther at all. I mean, he fully right. embraces evolution and things like that. So it's I mean, it's just amongst us. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. It's, it's amongst us and we can't hide from it. So it, it forces our staff, it forces the people in our church to consider these questions and take them seriously. Well, so the way that you phrased the question when you sent these over to me is, can I be a Christian and accept science? Yeah. It sounds like the default in your community is to accept science. Right. It almost feels like if they're being told that Christians can't, they're being told that from some other Christians. Sure. Not from your church, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So at least not from leadership, I should say. Okay, um, not leadership. Maybe from congregants or something. Right. Yeah. Congregants, because I know there was like kind of a scuffle because there was once uh, one leader found out that we were going to be doing this creation thing. Uh, they're a young earth creationist, like a KJV only kind of dude, which is weird because wow. that's not normal for our church. Right. And yeah. he feels welcomed, which is awesome. It's that totally. speaks that to me, that speaks volumes about the church that that person still feels welcomed along with the, you know, gay affirming congregant, whatever. There's that tension. And what's cool is I had a conversation with the middle school director and, and she was like, man, like, I don't believe in this young earth creationism stuff, but if I'm going to be honest with myself and I'm trying to tell students to think for themselves, I'm going to have to give him a voice during this series. And so she made the decision, you know what? I'm going to let him speak as well. 
So both of these things are going to be presented to students, and then they're going to be able to make their decision. Sensing a pattern here, Josh. There is a pattern. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So at the leadership level, everybody's in lockstep. Science is really important. We're not going to deny science. We're not going to we're not going to take part in this, you know, century and a half old battle between Christianity and science. But that's not everybody in the congregation. Mm-mm. Is there an ethnic element, uh, an ethnic cultural element to this one? Or is this more of a debate amongst like amongst various white Christians, you know? Yeah. Um. Uh, all right. So not to sound stereotypical, but. Where this is really not a problem, zero at all, is amongst uh, some of my Indian students. Um, Interesting. Which I know that's, again, not to be stereotypical, but a lot of my... if you want to stereotype (laughs) Indian immigrants and say they're really good and they really understand science, I I think, I mean, I would imagine people will accept that stereotype. (laughs) Sure. In this instance, that's very helpful. Right? Yeah, so yeah, so Indian congregants, they get it. I mean, the leader that I talked about who's a researcher with psychology and addiction, she's Indian. Yeah. Um and then my one of my students that's trying to be a doctor right now but also is like I want to be a youth pastor, they're Indian. Um, uh, the one who said don't tell my parents is Indian. Yes. <laughs> so you <laughs> now get Now that it. is a stereotype. Hey, if yeah. it's a real story, it's a real story. All it's right. a real story. Yeah. So I mean amongst that, those um those people, that's so wrong to say. Amongst uh, my Indian uh, friends, it's not really an issue. Really, the only, again, the only time I see it become a thing is I have a few students who are uh, from African descent um, yeah. that have a more conservative upbringing. And, and by the way, when you're, are you talking about African Americans, like their their ancestors were slaves, or like African immigrants, Africans? Yeah, I mean, sh- like straight up African immigrants. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's what, we, I, that's what I've taken you to mean. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we have people from from all over. And I mean, people that it's really cool because people in our church wear traditional, you know, clothing and people are free to worship in their um, their own ways. So, you know, some people sit during worship. Some people are dancing. Some people are standing still. Some people, you know, it's it's really cool. But yes, I mean, uh, traditional, you know, straight up um, African immigrants. Um, And those are the students that give me the biggest pushback because I'll tell them like, you know, recently we're talking about the story of Jonah. And I said, all right, now I know some of you are going to be like, okay, Josh, why are we talking about this? Jonah didn't even happen. And I said, okay, that's a fine question. We can talk about it later, but, you know, whatever. So, again, it just comes down to being open and honest. And Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's not talk about it later because I can, <laughs> an- I can anticipate your tip is going to be present them all the options. <laughs> Right. You're a smart guy, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and the next item is metaphor in scripture. Basically, what Brilliant. is metaphorically true and what's literally true. Jonah is a perfect example of this. Perfect. So here's our fourth topic, metaphor versus literal truth. What is the context for the kids or the young adults in this question? I, I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this. I don't know yeah. what an, a 16-year-old today assumes about this stuff. I know what I assumed 20 years ago when I was 16. So what do you see? Yeah, so what's really interesting is this is where I get the most pushback. Within my more progressive views, this is where I get the most pushback from students, from parents, from congregants, um, but not so much on the staff level, again, which is interesting. I mean, the head pastor doesn't agree with my hermeneutical approach necessarily, but he's open to it. So, Hmm. Which is weird because they want to have... You know, they want to be affirming and not believe in hell and 
uh, you know, believe in science, but they're like, don't tell, don't say the Bible's not true. You can't do that. <laughs> um, well, you, you, I mean, psychologically, it's the big one. It sure. is, you know, capital B, capital O, right? Sure. It's, oh, this, I can't, I cannot open the Bible and find something that is true right when I read it to me in English. That is a giant step, right? Oh, absolutely. And so people have a lot more anxiety around that than interpretive issues or, you know, where this not, you know, I, now, of course, they're all connected. And right. but I don't know that it's got the same psychological weight as this one. The other mm. ones do, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. And so what I see amongst this, the students is they get like, I mean, like you're alluding to, they get really nervous when you start talking about things like Jonah's metaphor, maybe the book of Job uh, didn't actually yeah. happen. Because, and I think, too, because there's a difference between the Old and the New Testament. Like, uh, the New Testament, I mean, we have way more documentation and things like that to show a stronger case for historical reliance of the Gospels or something like that. Whereas the Old Testament is so far removed from us. Uh, and their categories of, like, how we re- even record whatever you call history is, is so different. Yeah, how they thought of history. There's the fact that they were oral traditions for a while. Yeah. There's a, quite a bit more magic, magical kind of elements mm-hmm. in the Old Testament than in the New, although there is. You yeah. know, there's a lot of healings and exorcisms and, of course, the resurrection in the New, but there's less of an issue. Yeah, and so, like, straight up, and especially with the Old Testament, what I try to tell the students is, like, within the Old Testament, they're not recording history in the sense that you and I would uh, say we witness a car accident and then we write down exactly what we saw, but rather they're interpreting their experience in light of their theology and understanding of who God is, and so they're they're trying to explain that. So since I get the most pushback on that, the way that I try to not sway my students, because not not to be manipulative, but the way that I try to talk to them about this uh, is through my personal approach to Scripture, which I take a very uh, like Christocentric approach to Scripture. And so I tell the students that I'm going to read everything through the lens of, of Christ. And what that means is, you know, Jesus says that he, you know, well, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. Uh, and so anytime you want to know what God is like, Look to the person of Jesus, and anytime something happens that doesn't look like Jesus, perhaps something else is going on. And then they're like, okay, I can kind of understand that, and then I'll give them examples. So, uh, Canaanite genocide, which is something I know that you've brought up before. Yeah, I was just thinking the the Christocentric thing applies more to like the morally problematic stuff. Less to the like scientifically problematic, like yeah, Jonah that's living fair. in the belly of a whale for three days. Yeah, but yeah, for sure. Go on. Yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll come back to the Jonah thing, but I tell them basically that if Christ is the ultimate authority or the ultimate revelation of who God is, and then Jesus also says, "All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me," uh, so I seek to follow Christ, not Scripture, which that can be awkward depending on who you talk to. That's kind um, of the whole game, though. I mean, that's, that's kind straight of, up. It's the whole game, and it's they the get whole thing that. you've been talking about, right? Yeah. Is that like? It, there, if if we could follow Christ and not Scripture, we would all be better <laughs> off, right? Anyway, I, go ahead. I, yes, very much so. So, and then I tell them, like, so you look at something like Canaanite genocide, and you say, okay, well, would Jesus tell people to go slaughter innocent men, women, and children, and you know, cut open pregnant ladies and kill their babies? No, he wouldn't. Okay, so maybe they got God wrong there, and the students are willing to accept that because. You're using Jesus, who they get Jesus. They understand Jesus. And they're just like, you know what? You're right. That makes sense. So they're more willing to embrace it then. Uh, but also, 
one thing that I do uh, that I picked up from a, a buddy of mine. Actually, Dan, you met him uh, when we were at the AAR conference. His name's Jace. When I used to ask Jace these kind of questions like, did Jonah and the whale happen or did Job happen? Is Adam and Eve historic? Jace would say, I don't care. <laughs> he would. That's his answer. And he's like, not to be tongue in cheek. I mean, I honestly, I don't care uh, because it doesn't make a difference to me. Um, and he would also say things like, you're asking theology questions, Josh, and I'm a biblical scholar, and there's a difference. Biblical scholarship, I can tell you hermeneutically what the text says, but within the realm of theology, you're asking these existential questions that either the Bible doesn't know about or it doesn't care about. They're not trying to communicate the questions that you're asking. And so I try to show students that, like with within Genesis— it's not trying to answer, did this happen in seven literal days where Adam and Eve actual people? It doesn't care about that question. It's trying to present something different. And so if helping students see that and embrace that, they can get that. Because then the question is like, is the story of Adam and Eve true? Yes, absolutely. Did it really happen? Mm, it doesn't matter. No, it didn't. Or yes, it did. Go, whatever. Yeah, so what about cognitively? Like, I'm thinking about the high schoolers. Okay. Do they, can their brains handle something like that? I mean, I, I would think there's no issue with that because there's people like my friend Trip Fuller, who does the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. He was just raised, he's like exactly my age. One of the big differences between us is that he was raised progressive. He was raised hmm. a progressive Christian, and he just never thought that the Adam and Eve story happened in history. So, and and he's a vibrant believer. I mean, so I'm wondering, do you notice anything cognitively? My guess would be there's no problem cognitively by the time kids are in high school with going, yeah, that's not – it's not a record of events, but it is uh, – it's a true myth, right? It's a, it's a true spiritual myth. Yeah. What do you find? Yeah, I – I mean, I think once they get, especially older high schoolers, they're they're able to wrestle with that. And maybe, again, it could be a context thing. Because like I said, I'm in one of the, the best school systems in the entire country my students That's go right. to. So they're smart. Uh, they're developed well. They're taught critical thinking. And so they're the ones bringing these questions. And I think they're okay with that. Middle schoolers, probably not. Like when I talk about these things with, with my coworker, Heather, she's like, yeah, I get that. We can maybe hint that with the middle schoolers, but they're not quite ready for that. But high school, yeah, that's interesting. High school students, straight up, and I think what it comes down to is if the high schoolers are asking this question, then they are open to honest answers. If they're not asking the question and they just want to embrace whatever you tell them, then probably those students aren't ready to hear that. Which is why, from quote unquote, from stage, if I'm preaching and a thing about Jonah comes up, I will say something like I stole from Jace. I don't care if Jonah happened or not. You can believe what you want. If you want to know more, let's talk after the service. I try to address it that way because yeah. it depends honestly on the student. There's something really true in that of like not forcing issues on people, but right. kind of waiting until they come up organically. And that's the only time probably that people are going to change their minds you know, it's like blasting your political views on Facebook. <laughs> if the people on the other side see your post, like unless they come to you and they're like, hey, Josh, I noticed that you I think you vote differently than me. Here are my issues with why I couldn't why I don't think I could vote the way you vote. How do you deal with these? Well, now now we're having a conversation and now uh, opinions may actually change. But if you just blast mm. it, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what's that going to do? We we know that people just entrench, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and students students really entrench if you just tell them like you have to believe this. It's game. Right. It's game over. Straight up, you're done. You have zero credibility left with your students. You like whatever the reason is, uh, either from how our society is now to the fact that you can find whatever you want on the internet. So the students already know all this stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, you can't tell them straight up. You have to do this. As soon as you say, you have to believe this, you have to do it this way. You're done. So. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, number five, this is a, this is a simple one for us to answer. Why does God let bad things happen? The, the classic problem <laughs> of evil. <laughs> Obviously, we're not going to make a dent in the problem of evil, but <sighs> no. what's the what's the real life? This is interesting. What's the real life context for asking that question for for your students? Yeah, this is. I mean, this is such a hard one. And again, this is reflected in in stories like I shared with you about the the awesome Jewish guy that was uh, friends with one of my students who was a firefighter died in the line of duty. He was a great person. He wasn't a Christian, and and bad things happened to him. And I mean, those kind of stories are are not rare. They they come up constantly uh, with students, and um, it's uh, I don't know. That's that's maybe one of the most common ones that come up, and probably the hardest to deal with, as you know. Because as opposed to the other ones, do these do these tend to be because of personal experiences yes. more than abstract? Yeah, absolutely. This is always personal experience. I have a friend that's really great. This happened. Why? Or my family, we've gone to church our whole life. My mom got cancer and she died. Why? These are are real. They're personal. They're deep. A lot of the time, these, this question comes from somebody who's been wounded and then given a, a bad uh, answer from somebody who probably had good intentions. Like, oh, yeah. well, you know, we don't know why God let this happen or... Um, we don't know why God t- decided to take your mom, but you know it's God's time. He took her for a reason. Now she's an angel, and that answer is just not. It doesn't compute. It doesn't work. Um, and if anything, it makes students more angry. Oh, so God killed my mom? Thanks. <laughs> Great. So yeah, yeah. So the the cognitive question here is interesting because there's also a individual life experience angle that yeah. is different for each person. Asking Absolutely. It, right? Absolutely. It's not just a age thing, although that is probably part of it too. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it definitely is a part of it as well, but yeah, it's mostly, I mean, individuals. What's interesting about this question is this doesn't come up as uh, openly. The other questions we've talked about, people are willing to ask this question in front of a group of yeah. people. This right. particular question, the problem of evil is definitely a private thing. You know, students will be like, hey, you know, Josh, can we have a one-on-one? Uh, yeah, sure. What's up? And it's this question. Now, it's, I would imagine this one does. This one breaks across ethnic lines, right? This is... Oh, straight... Everybody. Yeah. This one... This yeah, is everybody. This yeah. question doesn't respect ethnicity. I don't think it respects age, gender. I think yeah. everybody, unless they're lying to themselves, asks themselves this question, uh, which has been going yeah. on for centuries. This isn't a new question. Is this question, do you, when you, when this comes up with people in one-on-one stuff, is this where you're grateful for your pastoral training more than your kind of theological training or is it both or I I don't know, how do you conceive of responding to this? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. As far as pastoral training goes, I think things like uh, compassion and empathy uh, really come into play here. And I mean, what's nice for me is I'm both of those things naturally. Uh, Like I'm overly empathetic. I'm a super relational person. I want everybody to be my friend. (laughs) And so that that part's easy for me. Like if a student comes to me and, and brings up this question, I can say, okay, I empathize with you. I understand. And even from, you know, uh, past experience, I can say, yes, I I understand. You know, my grandfather, for example, was a a super great uh, guy. Like, he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. Like, it was at times I have to be like, you know, Poppy, shut up. Like, I'm already quote-unquote saved, whatever that means. Stop telling me about Jesus. I get it. And he, like, got randomly, uh, got cancer, and, and before he knew it, he was dead. Why did, he's a great person. Uh, his his life was not done. He had more he could offer the world. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a personal question. Uh, so the the theological training where it comes in is I guess the the theological training I had been given uh, I did not like. <laughs> um, I was never content with God decided to do this or or God was sovereign over this decision or whatever. Uh, but where I find peace is within this idea that death was not a part of God's original creation, uh, which I know gets hairy when you start talking about like evolution and things like that. This is a question I, I wrestle with. This is an open question for you. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. it's an open question. But I really find, I mean, Tom Ord, who's someone who have you had on your show multiple times, yeah. uh, we've talked with him on Theology Doesn't Suck twice now. He's just he's an awesome guy. But his I found his work uh, when I was you know, first starting out in ministry, and it really helped me. And I don't know if I'm quite fully able to grasp everything that Tom says in in terms of accepting <laughs> yeah. what he has to say, For even sure. though yeah. if I were to die right now and God was like, Tom Ord has it figured out, I would not be right, sad. Yeah. yeah, I would not be sad. Yeah. So... It's so tough. Well, of course, you, of course, Tom would not believe that there was ever a time where you know, humanity existed without death or anything right, like that. Right, right. But he would say that God never wants the this kind of evil to befall people. Absolutely. Uh, God is just sort of limited in what God can do by God's very nature. We don't have to get into that right now. You can <laughs> find the Tom Ord episodes yeah, on e- either of our podcasts. But so this is, I think, the single hardest question for Christianity to answer. It is. Uh, insofar as it can be answered at all. Yeah. And actually, John John Hott in the Looking for God in the Future episode of You Have Permission said a really interesting thing about how if we do solve the problem of evil, we've like given evil a place in the world that it doesn't deserve which I am still unpacking. I think that's really interesting. I don't exactly know what that means. But any tips for when this this inevitable question comes up when you're dealing with younger people? Yeah, I so I'm really sneaky about this question. And what I do is I try to sneak in uh, ideas <laughs> from somebody like uh, Tom Ward. Or even I heard, I mean, I think I talked to you about this before a long time ago, but Tripp put out like a a movie or whatever. And a line that he said in that movie that stuck out to me the most was like, maybe sometimes things happen that are just arbitrary. Yeah, chance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I will throw that in with students. Um, Just kind of offhandedly, like, okay, you know, maybe you're you're in a bad situation. All this bad stuff is happening. But perhaps it's not that God is causing this to happen to you, but maybe it's just arbitrary and maybe God is working to bring about the most good from this situation. 
Um, and then I'll tell them that I'll say, I, and you know what, if I'm honest with myself, I kind of, I kind of agree with that. When bad things happen to me, I don't look at it necessarily as God is, is punishing me or, or beating me right. up or doing these bad things, but that God is always loving, always working to bring about, uh, good things. And so God's trying to use Tom's language, squeeze good out of evil mm. and bring that forward. So I'm, I sneak that language in, but I still pair it with, but there are some people who think this. Okay. So yeah. it just, I, yeah. I, not to be repetitive. So sorry, but no, that's, that's, it really that's good, man. It's <laughs> obviously you and I are in agreement. That's kind of the whole point of the show. So number six out of seven, you just wrote sex stuff. <laughs> I mean, I think I know what you're talking about, like yeah. purity culture and can I have premarital sex and how far is too far? One question I have for you is my impression, especially of high schoolers and maybe of college kids when I was that age and many of my friends, we were obsessed with like, what's the line? Oh, what dude. is OK and what can't I do as opposed to like being, you know, using discernment or, or something like that. Is is that your experience as a leader? Oh, it's, yes, 100%. I mean, it's always like, okay, well, so Josh, like if I, I mean, not to be graphic, but like if I, if we did mutual masturbation to use scientific language, is that appropriate? <laughs> um, or if we participate in oral sex, is that appropriate? Or like, uh, does anal sex, does that count as sex? And then what's... Uh, the old, the old... Uh, the, the old uh, God's loophole. Uh, what's the, the old anal way out yeah. of losing your virginity? Yeah, I've heard right. that one before. All of that stuff comes up, but what's most interesting, and I think perhaps you'll find this interesting, is literally last week I had a student contact me. Hey, can we have a one-on-one? I'm really struggling. Yeah, sure. What's up? They come into my office and say, Hey, so I get that like lust is bad, and you know I shouldn't want to try to have sex with all the girls I see ever, and so. I got a really good idea. I started watching anime porn. I started watching hentai. Uh, what do you think about that, Josh? <laughs> Dude, I was so caught off guard. <laughs> like, what do well, you- in, in a way, it's, it's, you know, you could look at that from some ethical angles. It's non-exploitative. Right. There's no people involved. You also could worry that it will... I don't know, make, give you ideas you wouldn't have had because <laughs> there, because the, there's no limits. I mean, I don't, that's, I'm, I don't envy you having to answer that in real time. That's for sure. No, it was so difficult. And honestly, I mean, I did exactly what you just did. I said, well, I mean, there's no P- other people involved. You're not exploiting women, but I did. I said, well, let me warn you. There's probably going to give you false understandings of what sex is, which porn does right. overall, right? They're, it does, yeah. Although if you're animating it, you you have even more license. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, I made a joke with him. I was like, well, just so you know, like, girls don't have foxtails or tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, No yeah, no comment. Okay, keep going. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, but that's, a, that's like a new question that's surfacing. Right. Uh, because I didn't have anime porn when I was growing up, and I'm not that old. I mean, like I said, I'm 25. Like you might have just not known where, or to maybe find I it, didn't Josh. know where to find it. Perhaps I that's think true. You, I think it probably existed, it, at least in Japan, and <laughs> so somehow online. Yeah, you know? I just I was just a bad Christian. I just watched regular porn a lot. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that I mean that question uh, comes up a lot. Just. Like to get back to a more serious note, the the question of sex and what's right and what's wrong, and uh, this is one that myself, the middle school director, and also the executive pastor, uh, we wrestle with kind of together. 
because all of us are are in agreement that like purity culture is not is not good. Um, hmm. And I think I shared with you when we were out to lunch. I, I shared the purity culture episode with um, the middle school director. Uh, the right. the second one that you did. Um, forgive me, I don't yeah, remember with, who your with guest Linda, was. Yes. With Linda K. Klein. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, my coworker was like, "Wow, like that that really messed me up because it spoke to my experience growing up, and I hope I never gave that to my students." Um, and then a really cool thing that happened is I had a student who I also I sent that episode to. They're a high school student. Or a college student, rather. So, um, you know, they're they're further along in their thinking. And they were like, I'm really glad that when I, you know, grew up at Seneca Creek, that the middle school director didn't teach me purity culture. And I, I was able to share that message with the middle school director, and she was so relieved. And, like, it was a, it was a really cool thing. But it's just, it's a tough question to wrestle with. And I don't, this is one where I'm willing to tell students I don't have an answer. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Do um, you encourage discernment? Do you like, yeah. the thing is, like, teenagers, the hard thing about this is we know that teenagers are really bad at forecasting the future. Oh, for sure. Like, in their brains. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. everybody knows that. Yeah. But there's also, like, neuroscience to prove it, right? Like, right. they don't, the parts of your brain that forecast the future are not very developed in a teenager. And sex leads to babies, which is, uh, a baby is sort of the most future-changing yeah. thing that could ever happen to you as a teenager. And so there is the, a, an additional layer of complexity do you think about that and how do you sort of include that in the way that you talk with them yeah so actually that's the when i have to actually give an answer if they don't like the i don't know answer i actually i go a more a route like that where i say okay well let's let's push the god stuff aside for a second let's think about this practically if you're out having sex all the time chances are you're probably going to get someone pregnant are you ready right now can you afford a child are you ready to to handle being in a relationship where you and somebody else created another human being? Like, do you realize and understand what that means? Um, and then even just to tell them, like, are you in a position where you're willing to experience like an STD? Like, what if, if, if you got an STD, would you be able to go to your parents right now and say, hey, mom and dad, here's what I'm experiencing. Can you take me to a doctor? Or would you have to deal with that by yourself? So if you can help them think practically, they realize like, oh, wow, like this isn't just about sex feels good, so I should do it. Yeah. Because the truth is sex is great, right? Like everybody agrees with that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, and like you said, forecasting the future, students are really bad at. And so showing that, trying to help walk them through that process and help forecast the future for them um, and say like, I've been there, I've done that and be willing to empathize with them. Be like, yes, I get it. Uh, when I was your age, and actually probably still now, you know, I'm 25. I'm at the like the peak of my sexual whatever. Uh, I get it. Like all the girls all the time, I get it. <laughs> and being willing to empathize with them and and let them know like this is part of. It's not a bad thing. Like I mean, you've talked about this a yeah. ton. Like. As a male, you're going to experience this. This is how your hormones work. You know, as a part of like evolutionary biology, your goal is to spread your seed and, and reproduce yourself as much as possible. Don't don't be afraid of that. I, I get it. I understand. But let's be let's be honest with ourselves and think realistically about if we were to just have sex with all the girls all the time, what would happen? And are we prepared to handle 
those responsibilities. And when we can get away from the God stuff and focus on the practical, like this is what's going to happen, students are more willing to be like, okay, you know what? You're right. I get that. And then you can throw, then you can, then you can bring the God stuff back and be like, so see, look, God's not trying to take away your fun or the Bible's not trying to take away fun or however you want to talk about it. Right. It's like uh, this idea that God knows what's best and God's always trying to, to bring about the greatest, the greatest good for us. So that's kind of the, the approach. That is really interesting. I just want to share this thing that literally I was just talking yesterday with a good friend who teaches high schoolers. She's a she's like a at a liberal arts school. She actually will show the kids brain scans. Oh wow. Of a teenage teenage brain and an adult brain and be like, "Look, it's not your fault, but just look at this. You see this area? You see how much it's lighting up in an adult brain and how much how much less it's lighting up in a teenage brain?" You didn't do anything wrong, but like you don't have this part yet and you will in 10 years. Right, right. And so just like – and she says that uh, kids find that really helpful to to see it there and to go, oh, okay. So that explains some of my experience. Just like, just like I had hormone levels explained to me when I was a teenager and I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> And, you know, now at 36, I can look back and go, I just had insane levels of these hormones that I don't have anymore, you know, and and that was helpful to know that, to like kind of expect that. Then I was given a bunch of like fairly questionable theology about what to do with those hormones. <laughs> but that's huh. uh, that's for another uh, another conversation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So this is our last question. And okay. I got to say, these first six, if you had had me guess if I had come up with 10, I think those six would have been on them. Okay. I don't think this one would have been on there. And I'm really interested to hear it. So you wrote, how does the gospel affect my life? It, and I, I take that to mean like, who cares? Like, why does this, <laughs> why should I care about this? Uh, and so I'm really, I'm intrigued by this. I, I Maybe I'm not going to start with any of my questions. Just why don't you just say a little bit more about how do people phrase this? Like, how does this come up, et cetera? Yeah, so this, uh, to be honest and upfront, this is probably the question that I'm most passionate about. And this is where my, cool. like, my, my pastor and theology side is really going to come out. But students, like, we, like, they, this is a legit thing. I had a conversation with students and I said, what? Because we were doing core groups, which are, is our small groups. And, like, something wasn't clicking. And I asked them, the whole group, what it, what about small groups isn't working right now? And they literally said, it's really cool that we keep talking about the gospel, but it's not relevant to my life. It doesn't apply. Can we talk about something else? I'm like, wow. When you say the, when they say the gospel, what, what did they mean? Do they mean like Jesus died for your sins or like, what, what, what do you mean by the gospel? And this is, yeah, Dan, you hit it right on the head. This is where the rub comes in. And I am purely, I am straight up convinced that this is the most important question within the church right now. Straight up. People in the church don't know what the gospel is. We have been taught for too long that the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And if you talk to people that like, I mean, quite frankly, they don't give a shit. They're like, okay, why did someone have to die for the the naughty things that I did? Who cares? People don't get it. People aren't being told that the the gospel that's not the gospel. I straight straightforward, honestly, that is not the gospel. The gospel is yeah, not Jesus cro- died on the cross for my sins. If I'm honest, as soon as I was old enough to sort of think critically about this 
maybe for me, 17, 18, I, I, when I was younger, I did believe that that was important. The older I got, as soon as I could, I was like, wait, there's like a rule in the universe where there's blood required for <laughs> since like, what about places where there's no blood? What about before there's any blood? Yeah. Is that a rule that like God is subject to? If so, where does that rule come from? I never really got the blood atonement thing. Yeah. As soon as I was old enough, it just stopped making sense to me. Seriously. But there was other things about the gospels and about Jesus's life and about, you know, there were other things that resonated with me for sure. But that part of it. So I can imagine, especially if someone's raised with that as the really, really central metaphor hammered all the time, I can imagine someone living today going, I don't get it. Yeah. You know? So is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, straight up. That's, I mean, that truncated reductionistic version of the gospel is what they're pushing back against. And for me, where I started thinking about this and it didn't make sense is I realized, okay, so Jesus had to die on the cross to for, in order to forgive my sins. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, God couldn't forgive my sins. Then I actually read my Bible and I was like, wait a minute, Jesus is going around forgiving people of their sins prior to the crucifixion. Boom. And then I tell the yep. students that and they're like, holy crap, you're right. So why does it yeah. matter? And so there's, there's a really, there's an episode that will have aired by now with a, a Schleiermacher scholar, uh, Catherine Kelsey, about how Schleiermacher, who's the father of modern liberal theology, one of his big things, he just points out people are saved by Jesus long before he dies and rises again. Straight up. <laughs> so whatever's in Jesus while he's still alive is sufficient for salvation. Yeah. So we got to rethink some of this stuff. Yeah. Straight up. So, I mean, I push uh, on my students heavily uh, what some scholars call a royal gospel, or what I'm more comfortable saying is the gospel. Uh, for people who may know, like N.T. Wright. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know that term, a royal gospel. Yeah. So, royal gospel uh, is this idea that the gospel is, if I had to put the gospel real quick into a very fast sentence, is that Jesus is king or that Jesus is Lord. Or, and the kingdom is there when Jesus is alive, before Jesus dies. Absolutely. That's the idea. Kingdom of God is here. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the idea of the gospel, how I teach the gospel, what the gospel is, is that the life, death, and resurrection, so not just the death of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God. Whatever it is that God is doing, whatever salvation is, it has begun through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The kingdom of God is amongst us. Now, it's not fully realized, right? Because we look around and we see all this shit that happens in the world that is evil, that is bad, that is not the will of God. And we say, okay. Uh, however, the kingdom of God has, has begun. And as, as Christians, part of our salvation, our salvation is not that we get to go to heaven when we die, but that we're called to bring about that kingdom, to partner with God, to bring about that kingdom here and now. So if we think that the kingdom of God in the future is peaceful and there's no war, then you better start being peaceful and not be a proponent of violence right now. You know what I'm saying? So that's yeah. that's the gospel. And that's why you're, the, the episode you did about the um, looking to the future, yeah. that resonated with me so much. Like so much because that's where my hope is. And that just made sense to me. I was like, yeah, of course. Like, doesn't everybody know this? But no, no, it's not true because my students don't know this. Like, <laughs> so I guess my question is when they said, 
why, why are we talking about the gospel? They weren't understanding the gospel the way that you're trying to teach it. Correct. Today, right. Correct. Okay. They were, and so that that sort of clued you into the fact that you actually needed to reteach them the gospel. Yes. Yeah. I had okay. to completely backtrack and say, "All right, guys, let's think about this." And then what I yeah. did, which you know, this might be right or wrong depending on who you talk to. I tore down their understanding of Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's what the gospel is. I showed them things like Jesus was forgiving people's sins before he went to the cross. What does that mean? I told them, I was like, okay, so you're saying that God had to do something. So is there some outside force called justice that God is subservient to? So he's not God? Is that what you're telling me? And they're like, oh, well, no, that can't be it. But what's crazy, Dan, is that the head pastor and the executive pastor on staff at my at the at the church I work at, they would not promote some kind of penal substitutionary atonement as the gospel. They get the things that I'm saying, which is why I feel so at home there. But the students but so maybe don't. it's just kind of in the American Christian water or something like yes. that. Or or the congregants are different than the leadership. Dude, again. American Christianity sucks. That's what the <laughs> that's the bottom line, man. Like you should change the name of your podcast to Theology Doesn't Suck, but American Christianity does. Yes, that, dude, that'd be so good. <laughs> Seriously, like I tell the students all the time, nationalism and Christianity don't mix. Like. The gospel is bigger than America is some shining city on a hill, but yeah. they, they have to be broken Although free this of isn't that. Exactly, this isn't exactly a nationalism issue. This is more just like the 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 strand of theology that became the most popular in American Protestantism. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, that that the cross. If the is mainline the churches had exploded and the evangelical churches had shrunk, this wouldn't be the same. No, right? not so, at all. As it happens, this kind of gospel theory and atonement theory was linked with, uh, and, and maybe causing, who knows, the type of Christianity that really became the dominant stream in Protestantism anyway in America for the last 75 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. And and the the biggest problem with this too, why the students are saying this doesn't matter to my life, is because what it does, like, I, like we mentioned earlier, students are super concerned with things like justice, social justice, racial reconciliation, whatever. And Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That doesn't include those things. But Jesus's message, you better freaking believe it. It absolutely included those things. And so... Can you bring in like liberation theology for kids that young? Or are they too young to think of it that way? Like Jesus in America is black (laughs) because Jesus is with the marginalized, you know. Uh, Jesus in Latin America is is the poor citizen being trampled on by the authoritarian regime yeah and so in my context now this isn't the true for true for all context but in the current context i have no choice but to bring those things in because the matter of fact is that is my students those are the people that i'm dealing with my students are african they are latino they are asian they are indian they are all of these things and so their their context their upbringing they already have that built into their understanding. And so if I, wow. if I don't talk about those things, I lose them. So basically what I do is I read that stuff on my own and then I uh, bring it like it comes out of me. Uh, because honestly, I mean, liberation theology is a huge part of who I am. People talk about like when you preach, who you are kind of comes out like your heart overflows or whatever language you want to use. And so because those things are a part of me, it comes out in when I speak with students. So I talk about those things often and frequently. 
but I have to do it myself. Now, the closest thing that I can think of, a group of people who understand this idea uh, and put out curriculum that doesn't explicitly say this is how it is, but gives you the resources to have these conversations and that has like this perspective is a, is a place called the Youth Cartel. And so the youth, okay. yeah, they they have a website. I mean, they have books. They yeah. have. Uh, I'll link to that if for if people are yes, in ministry please. are interested in more of this approach. I'll, I'll link to their website. Um, wow, dude, so cool! I don't think I have any more questions for you, man. This has been awesome, and uh, I'm I'm actually, I well, no, I do have one more. All right, <laughs> what happens? What do you find happens when you come at the youth, um, either the high schoolers or the college kids? with a more liberation perspective as opposed to the penal substitutionary model. What do you see happen in them? I guess maybe some of them, they get it maybe from their parents because it is more ingrained in some of those subcultures right. or actual uh, you know, ethnic cultures. What about the ones who didn't grow up with it? Like, What do you see in their eyes? What do you hear in the way that their questions change? Uh, that's something that I've never experienced I'm really curious about. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think it's more so... Let me let me say it like this, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back. Um, that's not what I'm trying to do, or be arrogant, or something like that. But you have to be, as a, a youth pastor, or any kind of pastor, you have to always fully be yourself. And like I said, authentically, the liberation theology, that kind of stuff, is who I am. And for whatever reason, this happens to me frequently, and it's not some like bullshit Joel Osteen technique. Uh, but my emotions are—I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And so when I'm preaching and I'm, I'm talking or teaching my students about these kind of things and we get into these con- kind of conversations, I can't control my emotions. My students make fun of me for crying. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say that, but uh, like, for example, I did uh, this one uh, sermon where I broke a flower pot and then for the next ser- uh, service, I had another flower pot, but the students wrote on it, please don't break me, I'm fragile like Josh. They make fun of me. So they, but they see the passion. They know that I believe the things that I'm saying and they see the passion. And so because of that, and they realize like, wow, Josh isn't bullshitting us. Josh isn't just saying whatever. Um, And again, not to pat myself on the back, but students pick up on that. People pick up on the, on authenticity and transparency and realness. And they smell from thousands of miles away bullshit. Like, you can't do that to students or people, I think, in general anymore. It's not working. That's why people are walking away from the church in droves, because the church bullshits too many people. They have to see that it's honest and that it's it, that you actually feel and understand and believe what you're saying. And once they get that, they say, wow, like, this is connecting with me on a deeper level than just here in my mind which not to get too spiritual, but it's connecting here in my heart. It's it's connecting with me on a level that I don't fully understand where I see the realness and the truth that is being presented here. Um, and so yeah, some kind of transcendence. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only word I can, I can say. Cause my wife is even like, why do you, cr- you cry at random times that make no sense. Why is that? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Yeah. Something comes over me. There is whatever, I mean, we can argue about what is truth or is there truth or not truth, whatever, but whatever this idea of truth is, ultimate truth or ultimate reality or God, whatever you want to call it, whenever you can tap into that and you have a connection that is completely transcendent, you can't understand, and you're speaking of this thing 
in a way that is 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 beautiful and true it's just completely overwhelming and you can't not respond to it and yeah. and the students get that and so people need to be willing to say i don't know they need to be willing to say people have been wrestling with this question forever you're not the first person to ask is hell real you're not the first person to ask is penal substitutionary atonement the only way and so i it's not really an answer to your question but that's just more so here's my experience um people relate to what's what's real and what's true and what's honest and authenticity is key and humility and not being afraid to say i don't know and uh students and and young adults pick up on that and i think people as a whole do as well well that's as good a place to end as any josh thank you so much for your time man what an interesting conversation i really enjoyed it yeah man dan thank you so much and hopefully i provided something that was worthwhile (laughs) and uh absolutely yeah sweet awesome Thank you so much, Josh Patterson, for joining me today. And thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. He's available for podcast editing. His email is in the show notes. Also in the show notes, I've got a link to Josh's podcast, Rethinking Faith, as well as the Youth Cartel, that uh, youth organization, youth ministry organization that he mentioned in our conversation. That's about it for this week. I'll see you guys next week, I believe, with Miroslav Volf. Uh, the famous Yale theologian. All right. And we'll be talking about flourishing and theology and psychology as different ways of thinking about human flourishing. Okay. See you next week.